Welcome to The Rock's Podcast. The book of Joshua gives the account of how God led His people into the Promised Land. Though they continued to display a lack of faith in God, He remained faithful to the promise He made to Abraham and his descendants. Let's join Pastor Ross now as he guides us through the book of Joshua. Buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be intense. Joshua chapter 10. Put your finger there and I'll eventually get there. Now, Heavenly Father, as we consider these very intense and provocative scriptures tonight, we pray that you would settle our hearts and give us profound understanding of your goodness and your love in a section of scripture that stumbles many people May our hearts escape being stumbled, but be edified because your Holy Spirit will teach us something about the character and nature of God. Your holiness, your goodness, your love demands that you fight against evil. So help us to understand the holiness of God in a fresh and reverent way tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. From Christopher Hitchens to Richard Dawkins, any atheist worth their salt will appeal to God's command to Israel to slaughter the Canaanites as their prime example of why they cannot believe that God exists. Their dilemma, so they say, it is a false dilemma, but their dilemma is that the annihilation commanded by God of these people is incompatible with the understanding of goodness and love. Therefore, God cannot exist because he has ordered uh, such action against these, and oftentimes the adjective wicked is left out, these Canaanites who are indeed wicked. Um, Now, You know, though it does make a nice excuse to delude oneself in order to continue in sin and resist submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ, it is, as I said, a false dilemma. I mean, it's very simple. First of all, it's ridiculous. We look at goodness by definition stands against evil to be good You're against evil, and you will fight to vanquish every form of sin and evil in the world if you are good. And if you are loving, you will be a warrior against all wrongdoing, evil, and perversion of the truth. Because there is a moral quality to truth. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 13, 6, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. So if you are loving, there's a moral quality about it. It's not anything goes, pat you on the back, everything's cool, or it's all good. 
That's today's version of love, the biblical definition of love. It does not delight in evil. In other words, love and evil cannot coexist. Love will see to it that truth prevails, and that's what we're seeing in the conquest of Canaan. Psalm 5, you are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men, the Lord abhors. But I, by your great mercy, will come into your house. Though God makes a stand against evil and promises to bring fierce wrath and judgment against it, he has made a way. And David says, but I, even though I'm in that list, I can come into your house and be in right standing with God because not of any righteous deed I have done, but the mercy that you have opened up and provided for me by the sacrifice of another, the shed blood of the lamb, in David's case, the shed blood of the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, in our case, Jesus Christ. Now, to stumble over what God is doing here in Joshua 10, 11, and 12, and in some parts of Judges, to stumble over God's fierce judgment upon sin and sinners who cling to sin and will not repent, or the existence of hell, to stumble over those concepts is a failure to properly grasp and comprehend the nature of God, his holiness, his goodness, and his love. The very things that they are um, accusing God of lacking are the very reasons he must demand the annihilation or the destruction of uh, injustice and sin and evil and wrongdoing. So he's provided a way, paving the way in the Old Testament through sacrifices and Passover to make Israel a light to the world. Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 5, that all the ends of the world would see his truth and come to know him. Uh, Failure to take refuge in God's provision leaves one vulnerable to his unrelenting goodness and love to destroy evil and evil doers. Now, Rahab, the prostitute, as we've mentioned many times, and her family, and even the Gibeonites, though they came to God's people really not in the right way, but they, they understood the greatness of God. They believed that it was just foolish to oppose the living God. And so they came, not in the right way, but in deceit, really. But God received them. Even the Gibeonites knew. And so anybody who wanted to repent within 400 years of the Holy Spirit working, Genesis chapter 15 says, God says, nothing's going to happen to the Canaanites until 400 years of striving with them passes. And when that is full up, and when that is completed and done, when I've exhausted my own patience with the Canaanites for centuries, then... When those sins are, he says, full and ripe, then I will bring judgment upon them through you, 
the people of God, the Jews, coming from Egypt back to displace those bad tenants with now the Israelites, whose name mean to be a Jew means to be conquered by God. And so the conquest of Canaan, among other things, is, as I said in my opening remarks, a prophetic microcosm, which means really a miniature event that kind of encapsulates a much bigger theme. And in other words, you're looking at the conquest of Canaan as the, a type of the end of the world that Jesus said in Matthew 24. Should those days not be cut short, Jesus said not one human being would survive. He says, those days coming, those last seven years are going to be literally, not quite literally, but hell on earth. It's 21 trumpets, 21 vile judgments come from heaven upon the face of the world to judge evil, just like we're seeing in Joshua 10. And at the second coming of Christ, People like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins will stand before their maker just like we're seeing and experience the wrath of God because they did not take refuge in the merciful provision that God himself, God himself provided, that God himself would come through a human womb and become an incarnated man, God, who spoke the world into being, that being became one of us for the sole reason to destroy the work of the devil and to stand as a human being perfect in the Father's eyes to represent you with no sin of his own, no debt to pay on his behalf, then he's qualified to pay a debt that is not his own. Had he had to pay for his own sins, he'd be disqualified. It had to be God. And so for you at the end of your life to say, you know what, I was good enough, and I don't care that you became a human being, lived a life among us, proved who you were, touched my heart with the Holy Spirit, revealed, Romans chapter 1 says, there's no such thing as an atheist. He says that through creation, God's eternal power, his divine nature is clearly seen. And then it says this wonderful line, I hope you don't miss it, for God has made known to them. He has explained to them the truth, but they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the created thing instead of the creator who is blessed forever. So none of this nonsense about God is this genocidal thug that came in to these beautiful, uh, culturally diverse people groups and uh, ordered their annihilation. That is a bunch of hogwash from the lower regions of the earth. In other words, called hell. God in his love says, I delight, I do not delight in the death of the wicked. I take no delight in it. He's not happy through Joshua 10. He's upset because men have hardened their hearts and resisted the living God. 
And so there's quite an amazing, I'm going to continue this because I think it's an important foundation for you to see the parallel of the microcosm of the end of the world in these chapters. Look at the amazing parallels. I've been pointing them out to you little by little. It's a seven-year conquest. It will take them. There's a seven-year tribulation coming. Same amount of time. Hmm. Daniel 9.27 says it's seven years. The kings of the region gather against Israel, led by one great king. The end of the world. The king of the regions will gather against Israel, led by one great king. The Antichrist. Revelation 19.19. Here in Joshua 10, the signs in the heavens with the sun and the moon. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 21, there will be signs in that day in the sun and the moon. Last week in Joshua 10, we saw judgment of 50-pound hailstones falling upon the enemy soldiers. In Revelation 16, 21, at the end of the world, during the Great Tribulation, hailstones fall. And not only hailstones, but my friend, in what was called the second and last exodus, listen to all the plagues that have already come as a, like a prefigurement of what's to come. The last ex- exodus will have um, water turning to blood in Revelation. Fresh water polluted in Revelation. Darkness, spiritual darkness that's supernatural in the book of Revelation. Locusts and frogs. Where, where is all this coming from? Well, we've already been here, done this. You see, the Old Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, says that what these things about the Exodus and these incidents were written for you and I, upon whom the fulfillment and consummation of the ages has come. He says, God was painting a story they didn't even know. It was for us to understand the foundation of salvation, to understand the life and work and ministry, the death and burial and resurrection and ascension and the second coming and the judgment of the living and the dead. He says, I'm painting a picture for you. And you're reading about that even tonight. So here's the context to pick up. We're going to pick up at verse 7 just to refresh and backtrack a little bit. The immediate context is that they are in the land. Jericho's fallen, number one city. Then the city of Ai has been subjugated as well. And the Jews are learning three big lessons. Seek God, trust God, obey God. And things go a lot better for you. Now here... There's a five-king coalition that we've talked about. They are ticked off at the Gibeonites because they made a treaty, a peace treaty, with Yeshua, Joshua, who is our Jesus. And we made that point last week is that when we leave the world, we leave our former friends, our former alliances, and they get upset with us because we have made peace with our Yeshua, our Jesus. And so the Gibeonites have called to their new employer, 
Israel, and they get, you know, they, they're texting Joshua, and they're saying, boss, uh, uh, we need you right now. You know, you were real happy about our, our woodcutting skills, and we could haul a lot of water for you, but you're going to be thirsty because these, give, these uh, warriors of Five King Coalition are coming against us. And the Lord spoke last week to Joshua, and he said, essentially, it's a done deal. Go, done. Already pulled the plug on their power. I already rigged it for you. The enemy's going to fall before you. Just walk this out. No need to be afraid. Somebody in the congregation was facing a job change. And she came up to me and we were talking. And I said to her, it's a done deal. You don't have to worry about it. God is going to provide for you. And it was hanging, and they were delaying and delaying. And then uh, two days ago or so, I got a text, and it said, it really was a done deal. And she got the job. It's just like, and here's what I said to her tonight. I said, first of all, I told you so. And then after I get that out, I said, every second you worried was a waste of good time. And she said, exactly. And she said, sleepless nights. I said, wasted. Go to sleep at night, O Christian, with the promises of God by your bedside and better yet in your heart and in your mind and cling to them as true. They are true. What good is having a promise if you can't enjoy it? He said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I will provide all of your needs. It's up to us to actually live like we actually believe it. And so they call for help, and here we go, verse 7. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army to go defend the Gibeonites, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, don't be afraid of them. I've already given them into your hand. It's a done deal. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march... From Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise, the five kings. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, who defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road, going up to Beth Horon, and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makedah. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky, and more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. And we'll just park there and refresh. We talked about this a little bit. Number one, if you're taking notes, every human being has two options. Hanging over your head, you choose the wrath of God or the love of God. Which would you like hanging over your head? Which would you like coming down from heaven? Every good and perfect gift from your father? Or would you like hailstones, 50 pounds each? You can choose. I've told you this many times about this horse that captured my attention on uh, Highway 4. On my way to work there, the college I used to teach at, and there was this little pup-up tent thing, little in the middle of a meadow, one horse, and in the middle of this green meadow was this little awning thing. And when it was raining, 
the horse would go under the awning. And it would, I'd always see it happen. And I always thought, what a smart horse. And I just thought, no one's telling the horse. It's raining. It's cold. You know, sometimes it even gets freezing rain, and it would be painful. Nobody has to tell them, you know what, we, we got this at Costco for you, you know, and, and we just want you to kind of use it, and here's the carrot coming. The horse just knows, it's raining, I'm wet, I'm uncomfortable, I, I sense there's a little danger, thunder and lightning, and the horse gets it and goes under there. And every time I'd see it, I'd go, what about people? Why are they so dumb? <laughs> Why? I mean, what does God have to do to get us to take advantage? He, he says, you know, it's hailstones or love, blessing or cursing. Choose this day. And people go, hailstones? Hailstones. Well, if you're going to say hailstones instead of First Peter chapter 1, where we're going on Sunday, those who believe in the Lord are, quote, shielded through faith by God's power until the coming of the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our faith is our shield from the judgment and wrath of God. John chapter 3, verse 36. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son shall not see life for the wrath of God hangs over him. Choice is yours, God says. Choose this day. Would you like to come under the awning of a faith that will shield you with God's power from his wrath? Or would you like to try to endure the wrath of God by yourself with no protective shield whatsoever? Men will choose. What's amazing to me about the hail coming down it only kills the enemy soldiers. That's the miracle, isn't it? And where have we seen this before? And where will we see it again? We've seen it before in Exodus chapter 9. Throughout Egypt, I'm quoting, hail struck everything in the fields, both men and animals. This is one of the ten plagues. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped away every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Once again, he has a very good aim. <laughs> he doesn't miss his target. And he takes no delight in it. He gives people a conscience. He displays himself through nature. All of the kings have said, oh, we've heard about this, and they use his personal covenant name, Yahweh. We've heard about your Yahweh. We've seen what he's done to the Og king of Bashan and the Og and Sion and all of what God did to the Amorites. They know. A wise person sees danger and takes refuge, but the simple keep going and suffer for it. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 3. The choice is ours now moving along into the most provocative miracle in the Bible. Verses 12 through 15. 
We'll take a closer look. I just mentioned it because I ran out of time last week. Verse 12, on the day the Lord gave the Amorites over, Amorites and Canaanites are synonyms, so don't get confused, over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon, O moon, over the valley of Ijalon. <laughs> so the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it's written in the book of Jashar. Jashar, I'm just going to pause and tell you, it was a, a secular book, non-extra biblical uh, book. It gets mentioned one other time in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 1. Um, it's just like Josh is saying, look, if you don't believe me, read your textbooks out there. It's in the textbook out there. You know, it's just nothing more is known about that book, except it's like saying, check out Josephus, a historian. It's recorded. Everybody knows this happened. That's what he's saying there. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There's never been a day like that before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man, because Joshua prayed that. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. I wanted to come back to this miracle because it's so astounding. It's wonderful. He's saying that God took hold of the earth and slowed it down or stopped it from spinning for one full day. And this miracle bothers a lot of people and it stumbles people. It should never stumble a Christian to read any miraculous incident in the Bible. Please, honestly, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In one of the verses, it says, oh, and by the way, it doesn't say, oh, and by the way, but it says, and he made the stars as well. You're fine with that? You're fine with that. Of course you're fine with that. I don't have a problem with that. It's like, wow, of course. I believe in a God who created everything. And he who created everything can suspend their properties anytime he wants. Amen? Amen. Getting excited. I need to calm down. <laughs> but what is it about Christians? It's once you buy into the first verse in the Bible, what is this? Well, it's like, Did he really stop the earth for one whole day? Why not? Why couldn't the one who just said, I think I'm going to make an earth, earth, and there was the earth. Why couldn't he say, earth, could you just slow down for one day? What is so hard about that? Why do we always have to have an explanation, a natural explanation for a supernatural event? Like Jonah got swallowed. So, hey, do we know on record of anybody ever living through one of these incidents? And by the way, we do. And then all the Christians goes, phew. Oh, see? It actually happened once. It's a God-enhanced miracle. And we don't need to say, well, how did the fire fall down on Sodom? Well, there must have been a volcano nearby. Oh, phew, we found the remains of an old volcano. And everybody goes, oh, see, I told you. I told you the miracles are real. He doesn't need a volcano. <laughs> he could just rain it down. He likes to do things like that. You know, how did they cross the Jordan? Well, 
we were reading in the history books that there was an ancient earthquake and a mudslide happened upstream. And all the Christians, oh, phew. We can now understand it. Well, you're going to have a lot of problems in the New Testament when Jesus takes a shortcut over the lake, over the Sea of Galilee. You're going to have a lot of problems there. What are you going to say about that? (laughs) Or when a leper starts going, you know what? I had three fingers and now I have five. (laughs) How are you going to explain that? How are you going to explain anything? How are you going to explain Lazarus been dead for four days? Well, maybe he wasn't totally dead. Maybe he was like mostly dead. Stop with the silliness about all of this. You know, when God does something supernatural, we really don't need to understand it in a natural way. And so here are all the objections. Number one, look at this. Anybody knows the sun is in place and the earth is the one moving. And then he says the sun doesn't move and stays up all day. You know what? (sighs) God allows Joshua to use perceptive language rather than scientific facts. Like scientists use, weathermen use. And professors use. When they go on a walk on the beach with their significant other, they do not say, oh, honey, look at that wonderful earth sink. (laughs) They don't say that. They say, honey, look at the sunrise or the sunset. They don't say, oh, the earth is now sinking, and isn't it gorgeous the way it has an effect on the sun? But it's okay for the scientists, and it's okay for the professors, but it's not okay for Joshua to say that. We do that all the time. You know, we say, oh, I'm so glad, you know, after we get through a, uh, an airplane ride or a, we're seasick on the ocean. We say, oh, I'm so glad to be back on terra firma, which is a Latin phrase that means solid earth, that the earth is now safe and it's not moving. Really? It's not moving? The earth rotates at 1,000 miles per hour. But we don't talk like that. To us, it's not moving. We know science is telling us a thousand miles an hour, but we talk like that. So if Joshua wants to say, man, the sun did not move, it's okay. We all get it. We get what he's trying to say. And anybody looking for an excuse to still stay in their sins, this loves anything like this. And then they say, well, what, what about, you know, the wind would keep whipping around if the earth suddenly went... You know, then the wind would keep going. It's a God-enhanced miracle. Um, I just remind you of Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Talking about Jesus. He's able You know about the wind, the what-if problem with the wind? He's pretty good with wind, you know? (laughs) Matthew chapter 8, you know, the wind's blowing. And and he says, 
be still. And then the disciples, I love what they say. They say, the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. I would have liked to be on that boat, and I do want to order that DVD when I get to heaven, because I want to see that one lived out. I have a quote from famous Pastor Ross. Here it is. I just thought, you know, I'm just going to sign this one. Sometimes I say a, a writer said this, and it was actually me, but I said this. All right. He who created the sun, moon, and stars by speaking a word can mess with their properties with ease. All right? That's RR right there. (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and take another minute or two to read to you a quote uh, that I got out of a commentary about Donald Gray Barnhouse, a great Bible preacher and Bible scholar. He returned to Princeton to speak at chapel, And one of his Hebrew professors came to listen to him in chapel and went up to him afterwards. And the Hebrew professor said to him, I'm relieved to hear that you are going to have a blessed ministry. Now I'll read from the commentary. Barnhouse asked him to explain. What do you mean I'm going to have a blessed ministry? He says, I come to chapel to hear if my boys who return to speak are Big godders or little godders. You see, some men have a little god, and they are always in trouble with him. He can't deliver, he can't provide, he can't protect, he can't make ends meet. He can't do anything beyond the man's finite imagination. He can't take care of the inspiration of the scriptures and their preservation and transmission to us. They have a little god, So I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God with whom nothing is impossible or too difficult. God commands and it happens. And these men don't need explanations and have no limitations for what the most high God can do. I call them big godders. And you have that big God mentality. And because of that, you will see big things happen for his glory and your great wonder. That's from James Montgomery Boyce's commentary on Joshua. How about you? You a little godder? Or are you a big godder? Can I just recommend the big godder approach? (laughs) It will really spare you. If there's a God in heaven at all, he's a big godder. He mandates that, amen? All right. I do want to say one more thing. In 1979, as most of you know, a rebellious, godless, sin-loving Jewish teenager walked out of a disco, a born-again Christian heading to Bible college to preach the faith he once ridiculed. If God can stop that man dead in his tracks, He can tell the sun to slow down. And I would suggest that he had an easier time with the sun in the sky (laughs) than with you and with me. Because we have will to resist. The sun was just like, you know? 
And the tides, he says, he tells the ocean how far to go. He talks to the ocean. He says, okay, stop right there. And the Man is the only creature he's ever created that said, you know what? Maybe I don't want to stop right there. And we transgressed over the line. That word is where you get the word sin. He said, stop there. And we said, no. And man became a sinner. Hamartia in the Greek, to cross over the line. All right, back to the battle. Buckle your seatbelts. This section is rated R for graphic violence. Now the five kings had fled, verse 16, and hidden in the cave. When Joshua was told that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave, he said, roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave and post some men to guard it. But don't stop. Yeah, we're, we're going to finish the job. We can deal with these bozos later, all right? Uh, but don't stop. Pursue your enemies. Attack them from the rear and don't let them reach their cities for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. It's a done deal. So Joshua and the Israelites destroyed them completely, almost to a man, but the few stragglers who were left reached their fortified cities. The whole army then returned safely to Joshua in the camp there, and no one uttered a word against the Israelites. So, yeah, they were pretty much amazed at God's people. Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, and there they're the five kings of those five cities. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, don't be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. Then Joshua struck and killed the kings and hung them on five trees, and they were left hanging on the trees until evening. At sunset, Joshua gave the order, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had been hiding. At the mouth of the cave, they placed large rocks, which are there to this day. That day, Joshua took Makeda, he the city, he put the city and its king to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it. He left no survivors, and he did to the king as he had done to the king of Jericho. So, Roman numeral number three, no mercy for those who don't want any or are too proud to ask. And so uh, we have another profound parallel to Armageddon. I, I wonder if any of you caught it. Where are they hiding? In caves. Oh, the kings are hiding in caves. Let me quote this to you from Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. Then the kings of the earth hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. Once again, more parallels, kings hiding in the uh, caves. 
Well, it's time to call them out. I'm uncomfortable talking about it. The dust settles, the battle's over, and he says, okay, distractions are, are fine right now. Go get the five kings, bring them out. They put them face down in the dirt. War is hell. In the ancient times in the Middle East, the custom was to humiliate and demoralize the enemy. So they put them face down, the five kings, and put their foot upon their necks. And then you heard, Oh, Joshua, have mercy on us. We have sinned against your Yahweh. We wish to be your people. We are sorry. We've been living pagan lives. We have thrown our babies into the fire. We have set up shrine prostitution on every corner. We are wicked. Save us. And in my dying breath, though I deserve to be now executed, save us as you did Rahab. Save us like the Gibeonites, which we just came after. Oh, if I could just be like them, slaving away and hauling water for you guys. Give us a chance. When we were in the cave with no sunlight and you rolled rocks over the entrance, what a merciful time for us to know that it was just a matter of hours before you defeated our people and came back for us. And in those hours... We got right with your Yahweh. Could have. You could have read that. But all five, I'd rather serve in hell. I'd rather reign in hell than serve in your heaven with your Yahweh. That's what happens. You think that it was a coincidence that God gave those kings hours to think about it in darkness? Hey, boss, they rolled a stone over the entrance. There's no more light. They're going to be back for us. We're trapped. God's saying, repent. I'm giving you time to think. They come out. He gives you to the last breath while they're face down. He's waiting. Anybody going to say anything? Anybody going to just change your heart? That's all you have to do and you will be saved. You will be one of my people. Just say it. Just turn this much. Thief on the cross, dying breath, gasping. He's got minutes to live. He starts out mocking and then he changes his mind. And says, well, whoa, hold on, thief number one. Uh, You know, we better just cool it here. (laughs) We deserve this. He doesn't. Obviously, look around you. Look what's happening. I get it. Jesus, please remember me. (laughs) When you come again, he says, today, this day, dying breath, not too late. You'll be in heaven. You will be in paradise with me. Judas, the last night of his life. He honors Judas right up to the end. Judas, you sit next to me. Honor number one. Judas, I'm going to wash your feet. Honor number two. Judas, here's the sop of bread. That's a Middle Eastern custom, which means I honor you. 
repent, repent, repent. And Judas gets up, hardens his heart, and walks out into the dark. And the Bible says, and it was night. Two guys, two choices. What do you want? You want faith to shield you from the power of God's wrath? You want a hailstone? What do you want? Judas said, I'll take the hailstone. I'm good at dodging. And he got hit. And God said, Jesus said, same thing. It would have been better had Judas never been born than to take his chance with the living God. So, Is this unmerciful? Oh, I see mercy oozing out of every verse leading up to the next. Even put your foot on the neck to help it come out a little bit. You know, maybe just put a little pressure and we'll get that heart to go. And God is saying, I'm doing everything I know. I'm doing everything I know. And there's no heartbeat. There's no pulse in them. But you know what? In me? He said, hey, there was an angel on the scene. Hey, whoa, we got, a, we got a pulse. We got a pulse. And this kid in front of the disco with his brother, they're both, they're talking to God. They're restored, they're born again. One hour later, I'm witnessing. Because I got a pulse, I'm alive. Because I said, yes. I'm not going to hell for anything. Not going to do it. Sin is fun. It's not that fun. <laughs> Let me just finish this. Let's read it, and then I'll make two comments, and then I'll, we'll be done. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him, just more of the same, moved from Lachish to another city, Eglon. They took up positions against it, attacked it. They captured it the same day, put it to the sword, totally destroyed everyone. Uh, Then Joshua and all of Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron and attacked it. They took the city, put it to the sword together with its king, its villages, and everyone in it. They left no survivors, just as everything before. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him turned around and attacked the beer. They took the city, its kings, villages, put them to the sword. Everyone in it totally destroyed. They left no survivors, just like they did before. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, uh, the western foothills, the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua subdued them from all of these cities, from one place, from one end to the other. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign because the Lord The God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. So six more cities fall. I like the thing one at a time. The war is won in one battle when we come to Christ, but the battles to possess the blessing are always one at a time. Just look at me as I'm closing because this is important. The battle that you face right now, He's ordained that. You're supposed to be in that battle. It doesn't matter how you feel, competent or no. He arranged all the order of all of these battles 
There are 31 kings to conquer. They all have time. It's all a schedule. They're all in order. And that's what you just read. They went from here to here to here to here to here. As God led them in battle, he said, no, 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 not number six now. You're at number five. And you're not jumping ahead to number nine. This is the battle that I have for you today. And let me tell you a few things about it. You've already won it if you cooperate with me. You're already prepared for it because I led your footsteps into it. Now, in confidence and obedience and trust and love and gentleness, by the power of the Holy Spirit, conquer. One closing thought, which I find fascinating. The five kings. Another analogy, metaphor for the conquest is the conquest of our own spiritual lives, our own wicked hearts. And one commentator said this, within the cave of the darkest recesses of your sinful heart, there are five kings. And when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit says, call those kings out and put them in the dust, face down, and by the power of the Holy Spirit who is in you, you put your foot on their neck in God's spirit. If you, through the Holy Spirit, and uh, destroy the misdeeds of the body, you shall live. That's a quote. If you, through the Holy Spirit, to put to death the misdeeds of the body, the five kings, you shall live. Do not tell me or God, it's too hard. <laughs> you know why? Because try letting up one of those five kings. Go ahead, let one of them up. And you tell me which is harder, to have annihilated those five evil Kings that want to kill you or to let one of them live. The king of lust, the king of pornography, the king of sexual immorality, the king of pleasure and addiction, the king of lying and gossiping, the king of envy, the king of greed and money and materialism. Bring those kings out face down, your feet on their neck. Boom. No mercy on that. Another beautiful picture of the conquest. He says it's a done deal. You want to stop the pornography? You can through the power of the Holy Spirit. You want to stop your lying tongue? He says you can. It's a done deal. Already done. Giving you the power. Cooperate with me. You want to end this vicious merry-go-round? It's a done deal. If any man or woman wish to follow me, let him deny self, pick up cross, and follow me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your power. And thank you for speaking to us out of ancient <laughs> scriptures.
that are alive today with power to change our lives if only we embrace through faith these wonderful promises that will set our hearts free. Give us the faith and the willpower to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Closing song. Father, I, I know I speak for many. I, I just don't even want to leave this place. I just feel your presence and want to, we look forward to heaven when that communion with God will be unbroken and perfected. Something that we only feel and get little glimpses of here. So Father, give us the courage over besetting sins and the kings that control us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to master them by the power of the Holy Spirit. We commit ourselves to your care. We're so thankful to know you and your love. Change us, Lord. Make us more like you. Through this word tonight, keep it close to our hearts. Let us not fall backwards, but go forward. Let us not be forgetful, but be mindful of these things. And let us not just be lazy because of grace, but work all that more harder to walk close with you in the days where these days are evil. (laughs) And soon you will appear. Light up the sky. The trump of God shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall rise, and we shall be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we look forward to that day. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.